మోత్స భగవతో సంబుధస నమోత్స భగవతో సంబుధస నమోత్స భగవతో సంబుధస So thank you for the uh, introduction and also the very warm welcome I've received here this last couple of days and it's uh, really quite a, very inspiring to be able to travel like this. I've been traveling since November and I've been in uh, Japan and then Australia, Thailand, New Zealand, now Malaysia and I go to these different places basically it kind of feels something about it feels the same wherever I go because there's always a sense of generosity warm-heartedness hospitality and people interested in listening to the Dhamma so these are the things that interest me and the quality of people's uh, invitation and, and openness is to, certainly helps me to uh, feel comfortable it's very difficult to teach the Dhamma if you don't feel uh, comfortable and happy where you are so your efforts are very much part of what allows the Dhamma to to come forth so this is sense in which there are particularly universal qualities that support the Dhamma support the teaching of it and also to bring those to mind so they support our own individual practice of it it's uh, coming through these various uh, cultures we see that you know I've been to, to Sri Lanka also and England, America, and they have different ways of doing things. You know, in Sri Lanka they do things a slightly different style of, of Buddhism. You know, it's all Theravada. I've been to China and Tibet. They have different kinds of Buddhism there. And then Thailand, they have different observances and even different monasteries have slightly different ways of doing things. And in Malaysia, you know, you come to this is more like a Thai style, and then there's also Burmese styles and Sri Lankan styles and they all have slightly different flavors and different ways of doing things and uh, the funny thing is when you're a senior monk you immediately put in the position of being in charge of it but you don't actually know what you're supposed to be in charge of <laughs> because it's always different from the way it, the way it was done yesterday <laughs> in the last place I was at <laughs> so you know you can think well, which is the right way which is the best way you know, which is the the pure way, which is the real, real authentic, pure Buddhism. This is a, a topic, particularly if you uh, scholars get into this, say, which is the real, authentic Buddha Dharma. So you start to look at this sutta and then the Chinese versions and the person, dif- different versions in different ascensions of the Tripitaka, you think, well, this looks like it was added later. This is probably a copyist error. This was probably added at the first council. I don't think the Buddha would have said this and then gradually sift through it to try to find out which is the real, true, pure Buddhism. And then when they even found the text that the people seemed to be confident of, they say, well, you know, the Buddha taught in India in the 5th century BC, so he had to talk like that. But if he'd have been talking now, he'd have said it very differently. He'd have spoken in the terms of the, of the society he's in. He wouldn't have talked, wouldn't have had those attitudes. Um, he'd have had more equality and democracy in his teachings. He'd have had more social um, un, uh, skills in his teachings. He wouldn't have had this, uh, he'd, he'd have said things differently. Yeah. So what's the real pure Buddhism that is not contaminated by any historical events or any cultures? We want to find the real pure Buddhism so we can really practice that and in fact we can improve it you know, this is what we people in the West like to think, we can kind of get rid of all these funny old Asian traditions and really get to the pure essence of the Buddha Dharma which is timeless and you end up with a piece of paper <laughs> with people arguing over it <laughs> or people presenting various documents and pieces of paper and arguing over it but then you recognize really that there's such thing as pure Buddhism (laughs) 
because the Buddha had to talk in a particular language in a particular time so that's always going to be conditioned and relative isn't it he couldn't talk in five languages at once he could only talk in one language to the people he was talking to so even the Buddha didn't really teach pure Buddhism he taught Indian Buddhism 5th century BC Indian Buddhism so and if he'd have been teaching in Malaya in the 21st century you might have said things differently but that wouldn't have been pure Buddhism either that would have been 21st century Malayan Buddhism (laughs) and if we we decide what we're going to make we're going to really go through it we can have new reformed Buddhism but that wouldn't be pure Buddhism either that would be Buddhism that would be Buddhism with western ideas or scholars ideas on it but what I do find is that when you start to to come to where where Buddhism is being practiced you come to living Buddhism and I'm more interested in living Buddhism than pure Buddhism (laughs) because living Buddhism is is alive it's human and it's like all of us it's like who has got the pure body here there are no pure bodies they're all different some are male, female young, old, strong, thin, fat, you know but they're alive aren't they and when we look into to real experience there's no such thing as a, as a pure experience they're all experiences experienced through relative circumstances through, through karma, through personalities through particular opinions and views through particular sets of emotions but when we really understand the, the living quality of these we can also, the more we open to them and we don't develop views about them yeah? the more we, less we get conceited that this is the right way, the only way, the true way, the pure way yeah? or that that's wrong, that's, that's, that's old fashioned, that's out of date that's, that's Thai, that's the Thai edition, that's Sri Lankan, that's Burmese that's not the real pure thing, it's kind of arrogance of the thinking mind you recognize whatever it is you know whatever your, your feelings thoughts emotions ideas views and opinions are you can you can witness those and this quality of, of witnessing and clarity and awareness is pure buddhism <laughs> this is really what the buddha was trying to ask us to do to find the only pure buddhism is, is, is actually being pure having a pure unopinionated uh, 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 open and calm and clear mind attitude or awareness towards our bodies and towards our minds mm-hmm. when we when experience this we experience a state of non-contention and so the suffering ceases and you experience a quality of non-grasping and non-holding on so the suffering ceases you experience a place where you're not contending with other people or comparing yourself with other people so the stress of that ceases and you, you come to somewhere where you're not thinking in terms of yesterday or today, Malaya or Thailand or England so the suffering of all that ceases it's not a matter of who's better, who's worse it's just you recognize any position whatsoever that you can witness in your mind look at it and see whether you're generating suffering around it whether you're generating stress around it this is, this is pure Buddhism <laughs> yeah. so for this it's very, in some ways it's very simple it's almost devastatingly simple yeah. because it, uh, it doesn't allow us to hold on to anything yeah. and that's kind of very difficult we want to have a particular an opinion or a view where the Buddha said views and opinions are a source of suffering and you can witness that in yourself when you start to get a, a view over who's right and who's wrong then you can feel what happens you feel a certain you know, emotion start to get more heated up then your thinking starts to get more speedy and you start getting tense and you can feel it's happening in your body he's right, she's right, they're wrong, this is wrong, that's right, he's wrong, they should have done it this way, they should have done it that way he's never like this, you're always like that and you can feel what happens, can't you? you know, it's ditti, opinions yeah. and yet we sort of, we like to have an opinion because it makes us feel we've got 
somewhere to stand, some particular position, some sense of security. But you don't need to not have an opinion, you just need to know that an opinion is an opinion. (laughs) It's impossible not to have some opinion about something. But you can recognize, well, my opinion, my view is this. It's like that. And then what's your view? Uh Uh-huh. And then how are we going to work this out together? How are we going to live together? How are we going to get on with each other? How do we stop getting caught and lost in our opinions? Because when you have a strong opinion, then it automatically starts to cut you off from other people, doesn't it? You know, if you have a particular religious view, or a dogma, or you belong to this political party, then you cut yourself from the opponents. And this cutting off, this separation is one of the main sources of conflict in the world. Because once we create this sense of separation, and you're one side and the other side, then the sense of ethical uh, purity starts to become less less strong because, well, you're a bad person, so you know maybe I'm, I'm going to offend you or you know or even abuse you. But you're a bad person, you deserve it <laughs> because you're wrong. <laughs> and then this is where, of course, war starts, isn't it? You know, there's never been a war when we said when the people said, well. We're going to go and be mean and nasty to somebody and kill them. They always said, we're going to do what's right and just and fair and necessary. And even if we have to hurt people, it's necessary to do this. For the sake of the good, the sake of the just, just, the sake of democracy, the sake of God. God wants us to do this. (laughs) You can always find some reason. to hold on to a view and yet actually when you put aside the reasons just feel what it feels like holding on to a view you recognize very directly this is causing me to be less spacious less warm, less clear less peaceful it's going to cause harm to other people ooh don't do that let's just drop that and you can, you can find yourself able to, to drop, to let go of holding on to a view. As an example of what we, we have to practice, pure Buddhism. <laughs> living Buddhism. You know, because it means living with other people. Yeah. I've noticed certainly in my own uh, time as a, as a bhikkhu, then of course you get with uh, uh, bhikkhus, uh, people who take up the holy life often have a strong feeling of they want to do, get to the real truth and follow the really good meditation, the best meditation system, the really good accurate one, the one that's in line with the suttas, the one that's taught by the arahants, the purest best meditation system. And they want to have the best system of the vinya, nothing contaminated, pure. And the true Dhamma, nothing contaminated, just pure suttas. And they look into the me- exact meaning of the Pali words. And um, if you ever try to live with people like these, it's murder. <laughs> and it ends up that people like that, you know, they have to live on their own because they can't, can't stand to live with other people. Because none of us, our bodies are not pure. You know, our bodies are like this. Our, our speech habits are conditioned by what we've been brought up, by our society, by our information we have. Our emotions are conditioned. We feel happy, sometimes we feel tired and sick and confused. The mind doesn't work very well. Where's, where's the pure Buddhism then? <laughs> pure Buddhism is just being aware of the state of mind, the feelings in the body, energies, the sense of feeling guilty, feeling anxious, and just knowing that for what it is. Yeah. And actually this is a, a very, very testing and purifying practice. 
So I went off and in my early years as a monk I'd have all kinds of ideas about the way that real Buddhism should be. And often in Thailand they just look at you and smile and go, well, you just think too much, you know. <laughs> go and uh, you know, clean, clean the path or clean the sala or, or do some chanting till you get over it. <laughs> Because uh, naturally we, we, off, we listen to the teachings so we, and we read the book, so all this stuff goes up into our heads and we think this is where the mind is. The mind is this uh, thing in the head. It's associated with intelligence and thoughts. And this really is the mind, you know, the ability to think clearly in sharp, precise thoughts. Certainly in uh, what we call developed societies, you know, there's this tremendous emphasis on intellectual development. You know, you can do amazing things, design computers and send people up to the moon and smash atoms up under the ground and all these amazing things you can do through the power of the intellect. Uh, but actually this doesn't take you to peace or nirvana. And this is, and moreover, it's only one aspect of what is really meant by the mind. When we meditate, we start to become more aware of the full quality of the mind, the full spread of it. And for a start, most of us also recognize we have a heart, or emotions. Yeah. So, you know, and that we feel sad, and we feel worried, and we feel love, and we feel joy. And this too is part of what we call mind in Buddhism, chitta. And it's really one of the most important aspects of mind because it's, it's, the, it's this quality of the emotional or the impulsive, whether we feel offended, whether we feel indignant, whether we feel comfortable, whether we feel trusted. This is what gives rise to the thoughts. And the, the thoughts, however intelligent they are, will rest upon these basic emotional instincts. As you can notice, when people are, it's scholars or intellectuals are having an argument, Pretty soon, it's the, the, uh, you can very clearly see that all these brilliant ideas are being carried on an emotion of anger or aggression. <laughs> you know, the will, to, the will to be best, the will to, to defeat someone, you know, get one over on them. And this is, but and actually, this is the much more important aspect of mind because this is where we create karma. Karma is created not through the topics of your thought, but through the emotional current of the intentions that we carry. Uh, and when I say intentions, I don't mean deliberate decisions. I mean basically fundamental underlying inclinations. So we might have the inclination towards generosity or towards uh, hoard storing things. Ah, you know, hoarding things for ourselves. And we don't carry these as ideas in our heads, but we, we find ourselves acting in such ways. We, we see the world in that way. Mm. So one of the, certainly one of the uh, big learning experiences uh, that I've had over these 30, 35 years or so living in monasteries is the immense power of the dana, the generosity inclination. Yeah. So certainly when I, when I brought, brought up in, the, in England, in the West, then people, it's not that people aren't generous, people are generous, but it's not really a big social, uh, socially recognised, it's not people aren't out on the streets giving food to monks every day. <laughs> Free will. There is charity, but it's often, you know, you get to the poor people, and it's considered almost regrettable. It's unfortunate that we have to give things to people that people are in need. So there's a sense of a kind of a, like a coldness to the charity. Cold, cold, effective, efficient charity, but not joyful, warm-hearted, loving generosity. Yeah? And the, the basic, understand, basic uh, inclination in the, in the West is you're on your own, you've got to work hard to make a living, you shouldn't ask anyone to support you. 
you should get on and be independent and look after yourself don't expect anybody to look after you and work so you can be the best get to the top and you know be better than everybody else and so it's very competitive and uh, on the street where I lived in London there were maybe 40-50 houses on that street and I knew people in perhaps two of those houses you didn't talk to people who were you know, who were living next door so it's not a kind of sharing generous feeling so when I came to live in, in Thailand as a bhikkhu and then the idea of going out on arms round and you'd go out for arms you think, well why why should they give me anything? I haven't deserved anything <laughs> I haven't worked hard for a living they don't know who I am we haven't been introduced and yet so I'd go on an arms round and then somebody would come out and put rice in the bowl and you want to say, oh well that's very kind of you thank you very much, uh, can I do something for you? <laughs> because you have to deserve it so you have to somehow pay them back but they, they just put rice in the bowl and make, put, made their, put their hands in hand and moved away oh, this is, what's this? You know? <laughs> and sometimes people uh, would uh, just I'd be walking down the street and someone would just come along and then kneel on the street and bow <laughs> at my feet and I feel terrible <laughs> terribly embarrassed that this, this action you know like what am I supposed to do something in order to deserve this and all I'm doing is walking along <laughs> I have to earn my living yeah. so then I get back to the monastery with all this food and then, you know, then, it, then they take the food away <laughs> so now we share you've, got, you've been given all this food now you just share it out with everyone else so I thought, well, I've got all that food for myself. Why do I have to <laughs> <laughs> in my bowl, I have to carry it. They took, take the bowl away and empty it out and give you an empty bowl. <laughs> and then you get some, so then the food is shared out with everyone and you get some other food. So this whole principle of, you know, like it's not somebody deserves it and somebody's better, it's just the whole spirit of just sharing and, and helping each other and it doesn't really matter who you are, who deserves it, who's good, who's bad it doesn't matter, it's just shared because sharing is a, a beautiful living thing to do and uh, you know, it took, took a while to get used to this <laughs> after all, I feel guilty when I think well I haven't really done, my, my meditation hasn't been that good today I didn't meditate, you know, my mind wasn't very pure when I meditated. Do I deserve the rice, the food? But nobody asked me. When I came along with my arms, well, they didn't say, Did you get into first jhana today? <laughs> if not, I'm not going to give you any food. Are you a pure Buddhist or a, or a sort of contaminated Buddhist? Otherwise, I only give you food to pure Buddhists. They just give you food because they, the sense of just loving the experience of generosity. So it really, uh, I found that incredible education actually it doesn't really matter because what does matter is that each of us can open our hearts and experience a sense of giving and loving and that you know you just respect people for where they are you respect people because they have, we all have our own karma our own joys, our own sorrows, our own burdens and it's difficult being a human being you know, because we have you know, we can think of the future and feel anxious about it and think of the past and feel guilty about it and we've got to keep going so somehow this spirit of generosity says well, you know, you're a human being too I, I just want to show you that we're in the same thing together I'm going to help you know, be generous to you because you're a human being you know? and we know it's difficult being a human being so the best thing we can do for each other is at least reach across the gap and say, hi, hello, here's some <laughs> and it's not that difficult you can do it with a spoonful of rice or even a smile or even a friendly gesture yeah. and then you suddenly think oh well, yeah, everybody has problems and suddenly with that your mind steps back from your personal predicament and you see it as just part of what everybody has to go through so this uh, living quality of human generosity and sharing does help us to, to, to does support mindfulness 
When mindfulness, when mindfulness fails, it's when we get really involved with our personal stories and our dramas. Like, I'm like this, and I never like that, and I always have to do this, and I never get that, and nobody has to suffer like I do, and I've worked so hard, and nobody appreciates me, and I didn't do well enough for my mother, and I'm not doing well enough for my children, and uh, I'm not really working very hard on my job, and I'm probably going to get the sack and I'll be old and miserable and stupid and left alone. You know, we get very involved with all this kind of inner babble, you know. Uh, and then every now and then, so that mindfulness, when you, st- you step back, you think, wow, you certainly do suffer, don't you? <laughs> and you step back and you say, this is just the kind of things that human beings live with, have to go through. And there's a sense of great kindness and compassion gets established. When, when we do that to ourselves. And generosity is one way in which we are stepping out of our personalities, stepping out of our me, my history, my story, into what human beings can do for each other. We can reach across, we can express warmth. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter. Because what does matter is that each of us has the opportunity to open our hearts. You know? And uh, so when I was teaching meditation in, in uh, America, then they have a lot of these big meditation centers, they have a lot of um, Dharma teachers come through who've got uh, skills and all kinds of techniques of meditation, and uh, people get very serious about it all. And after a week or so, you're so serious about your meditation that you're, you're really starting to get quite tense because of it all three months of being really, really serious about meditation, you start to take yourself really, really seriously. <laughs> and then you start to worry because you're taking yourself seriously about what stage you're at. <laughs> and whether you should try another system. Whether this is going to work for you better, or maybe you should try Tibetan. <laughs> you know, or maybe you should try... Vedanta, or maybe you should try uh, you know, Dzogchen, or maybe you should try Burmese, something or the other. Or you should do a three-month three, three retreat, or you should do no meditation at all, or whatever. And you, you become very wrapped up in your own story, your own personality, your own sense of history, and who you think you are. So when I teach, uh, I try to teach very simply meditation, just to breathe in, breathe out, be aware of breathing in, breathing out, find a sense of stability, witness the mind, and, and see how you need to respond just to stay with the mind, with the mind states, without getting involved with them. It's not to shut them off or repress them, but just to how to stay present with the mind states without an attitude. And gradually when you do that, you find there's this quality of, of a, a, a subtle, warm response, a spacious, warm response occurs, and your mind starts to... You don't take yourself seriously. And also, when I teach in, in meditation in America, generally I encourage them all to uh, offer food. So normally in these retreat centers, nobody looks at anybody else. We all walk around with our eyes looking at the floor and uh, nobody talks to anybody. And if you sit down, you make sure you sit at least half, you know, a meter away from anybody else so their energies don't touch you. <laughs> you know, and it's like, it's like everybody's got leprosy or something. <laughs> so I say, well, what we're going to do is... is is uh, if there's a hundred of us here, you can't spend this rest of this time trying to ignore 99 other people who are in the same room. Why don't you just get a sense of warm-heartedness towards each other? And one of the ways we do this is we'll serve each other food. You know, so that the, what happens is the monks and the nuns, if there's a nun, we, we go through the a line and they all put food in the bowl. And then all the lay people come behind and then they start putting food in each other's bowls. And some of this is the most um, beautiful experience of the retreat. 
because they, they've actually stopped trying to defend themselves from other people. Trump's trying to shut other people off. Stop seeing other people as something that's going to disturb my meditation. <laughs> and instead experience the quality of warmth and felt this tremendous relaxation and ease where they weren't just shutting themselves into their own selfhood. You know? So generosity is one of the fundamental ways in which we come out of selfhood. Yeah. So it helps to establish mindfulness in a proper way. Now, you know, when uh, when mindfulness, of course, is we could say it's the the uh, most often talked about feature of Buddhist meditation. So sometimes people say, "Well, just be mindful. That's all you really need to do. Just be mindful." And this is true. But it's often not understood that mindfulness itself has to rest upon other found, a foundation. Yeah? You know, we can all mindfulness is a natural faculty of mind. It means the ability to bear something in mind. You know, it means you stay with something, you remember something, you keep it there. You know, you're mindful of walking to the shops. You don't forget where you're going. You're mindful of cooking the dinner. You don't get halfway through it and drift off. <laughs> you know, so this is what it is. It's quite a, it's a normal faculty we use all the time. But uh, when we come down to uh, mindfulness of the mind, you realise it's not so easy because your mind does drift off all the time. It does move this way and that way. And sometimes when your emotions are strong, your thoughts are strong, then your, your mind is just immediately captured by those thoughts and emotions. So, although we can say just be mindful, it isn't such an easy thing to, to do. You know, we, get, we get carried away, we get swept away. So, samasati, or right mindfulness, does depend upon right view, right actions, right thought, right speech, right livelihood, right effort, and so on. The other facts of the Eightfold Path. And the first of these the most important one, the first one is right view. But very simply speaking, right view means that we get, we understand the name, cause and effect. We understand everything we think, do or say has an effect, good or bad. Yeah? So this means you have a sense of looking towards the good. What's going to be the good or the happiest or produce the most well-being or leap, take me out of trouble. Yeah. So you start to, to look into your mind, what kind of attitudes are important to bear in mind, yeah. to, to act as a foundation for mindfulness, what are the important fundamental inclinations that you want to encourage, so they become natural. And perhaps one of the most fundamental inclinations is just this quality of love and generosity. The more you can keep tuning into that and act upon that, the less your mind will get captured by regret, ill will, anxiety, fear, jealousy, grudges, yeah? <laughs> worrying about other people's opinions, feeling intimidated, feeling not good enough. All those are aspects of ill will. So the more that your mind is, is continually generating or inclined towards warm-heartedness, goodwill, generosity, and of course uh, morality, to do good to others, to refrain from doing bad to others, then that becomes the natural inclination of your mind. Hmm? So this means that every, every time we, we do, we're trying to do this all the time. You know, some ways in which we develop those paramita, generosity, morality, truthfulness, loving-kindness, we develop these paramita, transcendent virtues. We try to do that all day, so that it acts as the foundational inclinations of your mind. This means that your, your mindfulness will have something to stand upon, to mean that it won't get caught by ill will, and grudges, and, and fears. Hmm. It's so that one of the, the uh, example of this is that uh, you know when you make a mistake, when you drop something, you know you drop a cup, you know, the soup boils over. Then instead of going into this kind of inner criticism, you think, 
oh, oh, that was that was a mistake. Right, I must be more mindful. I need more attention in the future. That's it. <laughs> That's the end of the story. <laughs> because your mind does not incline towards ill will. Or you might even consider, oh, I wonder why I was so inattentive then. Hmm. perhaps I was being troubled by something perhaps I was working too hard perhaps I need to be more careful so you have more generous caring attitudes towards yourself and then when somebody starts blaming you and criticising you instead of feeling how dare you or you you attack them back you're thinking oh she must be having a hard day she's nearly (laughs) bad or she doesn't know the truth about me <laughs> she, must, she must have made a mistake you don't take in, you don't adopt uh, experiences that are based upon ill will because your mind doesn't incline that way so in this way when you, when you develop the quality of goodwill in any way whatsoever you're actually you know, preserving your, yourself from this contamination of ill will so being judgmental you know, having a strong opinion about someone else, you realise, does that do you any good? No. <laughs> Another strong inclination we develop, and it's partly that it's already there with generosity and morality, is the quality of renunciation, the ability to put aside something that gives us a short-term happiness or excitement in order to develop a clearer, more equanimous, calmer, steadier state of mind. Mm-hmm. And this is often a difficult one for people to, to get, partly because the whole conditioning of the world is one of being promised all kinds of immediate successes, yeah? immediate bonuses, immediate pleasures. You know, all the advertisements you know, everybody's you know, encouraging you saying you'd really be happy if you get a new SIM card <laughs> you know, and somebody's looking really happy with a SIM card or a box of soap powder or something like that so there's always an inclination towards something you can get for yourself will make you happy and, uh, and for, it's true that for most people that, that's true for a few seconds a minute or two. What it really makes you, you happy is the ability to let go of things, to, to give up things. When I was travelling from uh, New Zealand to, to Bangkok, I had this whole bag, big bag I was carrying with me of books and this and that and the other, and I put it on the belt in, in Auckland and I waited in the belt in Bangkok and nothing happened. <laughs> I stood there and it didn't happen, didn't come down the tube, didn't come down the belt. Oh well. Oh. And then somebody came and took me to a little office and they said, oh well, it hasn't arrived. And I, in my mind, I thought, that's really all right. In fact, it's really nice. I don't have to carry that bag on. <laughs> I looked in my mind and thought, well, I've got my passport. I've got my ticket. I've got a few numbers of people. That's enough. It was a really lovely feeling. <laughs> There's even... Uh, more the case when I was in India and I went, to, went on pilgrimage in India and I was carrying I wasn't carrying very much, it was about 9 kilos I think didn't seem very much when I was in England and a bowl, my robes a little clock, knife a spoon shaving equipment you know, just bits and pieces uh, something to sleep on, lie down at night and when I was in India uh, I was with a, this friend of mine, we were walking through a forest and we got jumped on by these robbers. <laughs> and they stole everything and uh, I had. He even took my robe, so all I had, <laughs> I just had this under robe, one robe, and a pair of sandals, and everything else was gone. 
passport, everything gone, clock gone, ring gone. And you get this sense of, oh. <laughs> and then you realise, I'm alright, you know. <laughs> I'm really alright. And uh, then I, so then we, we were in, this was in Rajagir, and then we thought, well, we'll just keep walking. You know? And we walked in for two days to, to Narland, to, onto Bodhagaya. Somebody gave us each a blanket, so a little blanket to lie down on at night. And I found a toothbrush <laughs> in my teeth, put a bottle to put some water in. I thought, well, this is great. You know, why was I carrying all this stuff around? <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying we should always live like that. <laughs> But you just realise how much, when you possess things, they possess you. You know, you've got to worry about your car, get the thing insured, worry about the engine, keep getting it checked out. Got your computer, and immediately the thing starts giving you messages about you to update this, add this, change that, and then the thing's out of date, get a new one, and make sure it doesn't get stolen break down, get viruses on it. <laughs> Holding on to things is really hard work. And you can spend your whole life, you know, your house, car, da 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 <laughs> And every one of them needs something else to keep it going. And you, you feel you're living your whole life to keep all this stuff going. <laughs> and so, but I notice myself when I you know, even as a monk, I accumulate all kinds of things. People will give me things. I think, oh well, that'll be, I think will come in handy one day, I'll put it there. <laughs> and I think, well, that's really nice, so I'll just put that there. And that's, oh, well, I mean, another pair of socks could be useful in case the other, I'll put them in there. And then, so eventually after a few months, my, my cootie my, is full of stuff. <laughs> And I go, to, I think, oh, I've got so much stuff in it. And I go, I want to give it, get rid of it. And as I get hold of it, something says, well, that, you might need that one day. <laughs> you might need that one day. And I think, goodness me, it's got, this thing has got teeth in it. It's got claws on it. It's holding on to it with this, you might need this one day. I think, but I might be dead one day. You know? <laughs> but I will be dead one day. So get rid of it quick, you know, because it's 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 got a hypnosis about how you might you need and could be handy and one of these. Everybody else has one. It's kind of cute, and your auntie gave it to you anyway. <laughs> so I always make a practice. Most every week, I sort of start clearing things, clearing things. Now after a while, I start to establish a rule in my mind, if somebody gives me something, I have to give something else away. Yeah. Just to keep the sense of not holding on to things. Yeah. So it's a nice thing to do, because then you do realize that, you know, as a human being, we come into this world naked, and we go out naked. <laughs> and uh, how, much, how much effort do you want to spend in holding on? all the rest of it, how much can you actually say you know and I realised that all the things I've given up I've never wanted any of them back yeah. I've never wanted any of them back but when I was trying to let go of them they said oh you really you need this, this is great this is so nice it's so, because they've got, they got teeth on, they've got claws these things. and you let go of it you think, goodness me I'm fine without it, you know. And just that the quality of of uh, strength, quiet strength. It's not an arrogant power strength. It's the strength of knowing you're a free person, you know. You can be a free person, not a free personality, but you can experience this quality of freedom. It's no, you know, it's not that remote. And it's not sort of just something that, that occurs at the long, end of a long, long process of working through all kinds of stuff and maybe next lifetime you might get a little taste of it. You can be a, you can be a free person now. You can be free of the 
nagging, the hanging on, the heaviness, the fearfulness, the guiltiness, the clamminess, the stickiness of it. Admittedly, that freedom only lasts for a few minutes before you cling on to something else. Because <laughs> it's a sticky kind of life, you know. We're like built like flypaper. <laughs> but you can, you know, you just keep doing that. Knowing that even trying to hang on to the idea of being pure, no, you can't be pure. But you can keep purifying. You can keep recognizing the stickiness and what it feels like. In fact, that's much healthier. Yeah? We had an example of, uh, one of one of our monks who took himself very seriously indeed, and he was uh, very strong on renunciation. Yeah. He really felt, you know, he, so when you drink some tea, say, when you're drinking tea, notice the greed in your mind. <laughs> I'd like to just drink some tea, thank you, I'm thirsty. Too. So he was always going on about greed and attachment and how impure the body was and how impure we all were. And uh, so he, he had a very strong standard like this, so this uh, trying to be really pure. And then we'd, we'd, uh, we'd go for, in Britain, we'd go for, we take our food by going through the, the kitchen, is, the food is all offered, and then you can go, and people put food in the bowl, or sometimes you take some food. And there's also, there's a, there's a bin where they put the waste food, you know, the waste food or the potato peelings, things like that. So they put, throw that there. And then one day, he came and he confessed that, He'd been going through the food line and he'd seen a, a chocolate had fallen into the waste bin. And when he saw this chocolate, his mind was completely overwhelmed with greed. He dived into this waste bin to fish out the chocolate and eat it. <laughs> we all felt really glad. <laughs> finally, he was actually recognizing greed rather than, uh, rather than preaching about it all the time. You know? so, so that you know, the parameter of honesty and truthfulness is recognizing one, the, the power of greed, how it comes over us, you know, and not by saying, I'm someone who never experiences greed, I'm completely pure, but saying, I'm someone who's watchful and aware, looking out for greed when it arises, aware of what it feels like, aware of its hypnotic power, and knowing how I can let go of it. So instead of having a view about, I shouldn't be greedy, having an opinion and a view about being pure and not being greedy, I have a practice that is there to witness the greed arising in my mind, know what it feels like. Yeah. So when I'm traveling, I often find it very uh, uh, interesting when I go through airports, because when you go through an airport, you have to walk through these shopping arcades. <laughs> You've probably been through all this. And there's Johnny Walker, and, uh, and it looks really good. Uh, you know, because generally some, you know, it looks very smooth and comfortable and happy and sophisticated. And there's amazing watches dripping with jewels and diamonds, and there's beautiful women wearing these amazing wristwatches, or handsome men wearing these amazing wristwatches. And then there are perfumes and leather goods, and they're all reaching out with <laughs> tentacles of greed. <laughs> and as I walk through them, I know I haven't got any money anyway, <laughs> but I'm not going to be wearing perfume. And I'm never going to look that beautiful. <laughs> but I can still feel this greed atmosphere kind of sweeping over my mind, like almost like a radar sending out this radiation of greed and desirability. I just, I, I just feel, that's what it feels like. Aha, uh-huh, isn't that interesting? The way it excites the mind, the way it dazzles the mind, the way the mind feels kind of agitated by it all. I just keep walking, feeling all that happen, and just keep walking through it. Yeah. Rather than feeling frightened of it, or, oh dear, I'm feeling this, that, or the other, worried about myself, I just notice the power of attraction and uh, stay steady in my own, in my mind. Mm-hmm. 
sometimes we just steady the mind very simply by feeling the body yeah. so one of the primary ways in which you stabilize your mind mindfulness of the body is the first foundation is when you, you can feel the, the presence of your body particularly the palms of your hands, the soles of your feet because then your awareness is very widespread you can feel what's happening in your chest or your belly or in your face around your eyes so you feel these emotions have a, a kind of a, have a bodily effect yeah? and this is where the, the, another aspect of mind we talk about the mind being the head, mind being the heart the mind is also in the body and this is something we really have lost touch with. Mind, the body itself has got has mind in it. It's got intelligence. So every time you feel a strong emotion, you feel something in your body. So that one of the ways in which we sustain mindfulness is by feeling what's happening in the body rather than going into the emotions and the thoughts. You can sort of rest in the tension or the relaxation or the firmness of your body and then you can feel these emotions moving through you but you don't get caught in them so this is why the Buddha so often recommended mindfulness of the body and saying this is uh, all the states of mind that are conducive to wisdom they all flow into mindfulness of the body just as all the streams in the world flow into the ocean everything that is associated with, with wisdom flows into mindfulness of the body hmm? so those who establish mindfulness of the body touch the deathless you don't touch the deathless unless you've established mindfulness of your body these are the words of the Buddha hmm? so, you know, what body? male body, female body, old body, sick body, young body basically your body <laughs> that's where pure Buddhism is <laughs> that's where it gets established your body, your mind, your day, your life, your karma that's where you find true Buddhism being established yeah. so I, I'd like to just encourage you and uh, recognize one of the beauties of the diversity of uh, of all these Buddhist cultures and all our individual personalities is recognizing that this Dharma body yeah, is everybody and it's nobody <laughs> when you understand that then I think you've understood something very helpful so I'll pause there today So if you, you know, some time for questions, if you want to sit and let things settle down in your mind for a few minutes, stretch your legs.